Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, we've had quite a few weeks lately on the Untoxicated Podcast where it's just me and you. Yeah, or just you. Or you have the one that was just me, yeah. But we're breaking the cycle now. We've got a guest on, and it's someone that uh, I've, I've known for a few months now, and I'm super excited. I say that about everybody. This time, I really mean it. I'm super excited <laughs> to have uh, what has quickly become a good friend, our good friend Toby on with us. Welcome, Toby. Hi. Thank you. Thank you for letting me be a part of this. Yeah, absolutely. Love having you on. Um, I want to go back to the beginning of our relationship, not even the beginning. I want to go back to before we met. And I honestly don't remember if you told me this or if Jane told me this, but I know that when you first came across like my existence, um, because, because I think we did start talking to Jane first, you were like, who the hell is this guy? Like that was kind of your initial reaction to me. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. It's kind of like I should have had a t-shirt with it. Yeah, I was like, who in the world? Where did this guy come from? How did you find him? And what does he have to do with with us? You know, like you became the other guy for a hot second in the house because I just didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and Jane told me about uh, some of the work you were doing and, and those types of things. And yeah, I didn't know what to think, to be honest with you. Uh, well, I only bring it up because I've had that reaction. Like most of the people that I am enamored with now and that I follow religiously, that's how it started. I'm like, who is this blowhard? Like, how could this person <laughs> have anything to contribute to society? And so when I, I know it is harsh. I'm, I'm not a nice person. When I first heard that, I was like, oh, that is perfect. That is perfect. But how how far we have come it is the reason I, I wanted to bring that up because, you know, now in, in recent weeks, you actually led one of the shout sobriety sessions when I wasn't able to be there. So um, we've gone from who the hell is this guy to like, you know, we're, we're, we're good friends. And I think so much of you um, that I handed you the keys to the car when I wasn't able to drive one night. Yeah, I was totally, uh, I was initially caught off guard. I was like, wow. Um, Sure. Yeah. You know, I think that in our, even in our group that we meet with, you know, there's so many people that, have such great stories and such, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, better stories than mine um, about their own recovery and what they've been doing or discovery. And um, yeah, it was really cool to be a part of that. I even shared with them before we got started. I'm like, I'm not Matt and uh, I don't have a book and um, you all know me for a little bit, but yeah, it was a good conversation. And it was, it was neat being on the other end of that, you know, uh, for a hot second. Well, there might be people in that group with better stories, but there's no one who's a better storyteller. Uh, you just have a way with it, man. And that's, that's why we're glad to have you on. And I, b- before I leave this topic, I want to just throw out there, um, our, our newest program, which we've referenced very little, but a little on the intoxicated podcast is called marriage evolution. Um, it's a once a month couples deal. And often on that video call, I know only one member of the relationship and Sherry and I know one member of the relationship. We don't know the other one. The other one has been dragged to this video call and and boy I just sit there and sweat bullets through that whole thing because I'm looking at the one face that I know and it doesn't matter what the expression on their face is I, I like have a feel for their personality 
And then I'm looking at this other like steely faced person, just like eyeballing me, like I would choke you out if I could reach through this video call right now. So. Think that's how it is. God. That's just your imagination over here. <laughs> Letting out a lot of pieces of my yeah. personality right yeah. off the bat here. Paranoia, maybe. Well, a lot mm -hmm. of paranoia. There's a lot but of layers nice underneath to, there. It is nice to have a couple that we work with that both are very contributing to both sides of the, um, I guess, sides of the road for both of our yeah, shout sobriety. Both, yeah. both sides of the street. Yeah, shout sobriety <laughs> and, and echo. So I, I love having you engaged in that yeah. marriage evolution yeah absolutely well okay now that we've got all of my um my problems out of the way uh, <laughs> what we're here for man yeah oh, oh, i feel better i don't know about anybody else but i feel better um <laughs> let's talk a little bit about about your story your history uh with alcohol your family history and um i'd love to go back you know, as far back as you want to, Toby, I, I know you come from a, a devoutly religious family and that's a big yeah. part of your story. Yeah. Um, tell us about what it was like, like, like I've talked a lot about how I grew up and alcohol was, was very present in my life from the adults, specifically the men that were drinkers in my life. What was it like for you as a kid? Yeah. You know, um, it was interesting. Um, I grew up in a, a fairly, I guess you could call like medium size, medium to large size family. I have two younger sisters and a younger brother. So there's six of us um, and grew up in a pretty well-known city uh, in the world and was definitely on uh, one of the, you know, we weren't a family with a lot of money um, or things like that, but, you know, we had everything that we needed, but, you know, it was all six of us, my grandfather, my grandmother and my aunt, you know, all in the same home. And I will just tell you that home was not very big um, at all. And um, yeah, you mentioned uh, religious, you know, definitely grew up in the church. Um, I would still call myself like a Christian um, for sure. Um, but I think like back then when you're growing up, um, you know, you don't know what you don't know and you're taught, you know, values, you know, you're getting your values from your parents, from your grandparents and um and you kind of get this and it, in particular you know as a black man like grandma's word is like everything you know I, I don't think necessarily always ties to race but you know growing up in that kind of home like it was very clear what things were good and what things were not you know and um unbeknownst to me my dad who is you know he's one of the nicest guys on the planet you would never know this um was a recovering or recovered alcoholic he um basically he was a he was in the army he was a vietnam veteran like all these other things and so he, he had a lot of things that went on and um he drank pretty heavily to the point once that um when my mom was actually pregnant with me um and i mentioned like we lived with my grandparents and my aunt and that was all on my mom's side of the family um she was pregnant and it was like cold out, pretty cold. And he had promised they lived in this place and he was gonna bring her the keys and bring her into the house because he needed to work or something like that. And he ended up getting like pretty drunk. And uh, my mom didn't wanna embarrass him, you know, to her family because basically, um, you know, she was in a lot of ways trying to protect him. And so instead of, you know, it wasn't the day of cell phones or anything like that. So instead of like, Call, being able to call him or anything like that um she sat on this end of the steps 
and waited for him. And she waited into like all hours of the night, you know? And I think it was like, if she were to retell the story, I want to say it was like dawn or right before dawn where he like stumbled home and she had sat out there, you know, pregnant with me, you know, the whole time. And you would think that, um, you would think that moments like that would definitely wake, wake people up and, and wake you up. And, um, and so, yeah, like, besides that, I didn't know that incident. Obviously I wasn't on earth, so to speak yet. And when I was actually a kid, like because of things like that, and because my dad had said alcohol was not for him and realized it, we didn't have it in the house, you know, except for one person, uh, which was my, my mom's twin sister, they were fraternal twins. And she was probably my first introduction to any type of addiction, you know? And to this day, like, I'm not sure all of what she, um, you know, God bless her partook in, um, but I definitely know she drank. And I definitely know she had some pretty crappy boyfriends that would come by the house and, and they were heavy drinkers and she was a smoker. And I just knew as a kid that, I don't know, her demeanor was distinctly different you know, than everybody else in the house most days. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, grew up kind of in that environment. She, um, she had a lot of arguments uh, with my dad because my dad would try to help her out. In fact, my dad at a point started working at halfway houses and helping people with alcohol addiction. You know, his story is actually pretty amazing. Um, in my opinion, just the things that he's done, he's been now, it'll be 45 years sober this year. You know, and so like when they were getting to some of these arguments, I'd pay attention as a kid and wonder what was going on, but I really didn't, you know, and uh, he was basically trying to keep the venom out of the house, so to speak. And um, she died very young, you know, and so I remember that and nobody really told us as kids why, you know, I was like, something's going on with her and we didn't really know what happened. And, and yeah, so so time goes on and you grow up with that and you just knew that certain things weren't, we just didn't do. You definitely didn't have sex before marriage and you definitely didn't drink. Those for sure. And didn't, didn't smoke. Um, and, and that's the way, you know, over my young adult years looked. Like I didn't, I was, I wouldn't say I was the poster child for being good, but I was definitely a, a goody two shoes because where I grew up, like you kind of had to be to kind of stay alive, you know, and um, yeah, I was definitely goody two shoes and, um, to the point where people would talk about drinking and things like that. And it was so foreign to me that I'd be like, Oh yeah, I'd, I'd never do that. I would never have a reason to do that. You know? So mm-hmm. yeah, that, that was all the way through, um, that was all the way through high school, even early into college, you know, so hadn't touched a drop of alcohol, hadn't even really been around, around it, to be honest with you. Um, and then all that shifted. <laughs> Out of yeah. yeah. Well, well, so, so with the story with your aunt, that's so interesting. So like the dots are there, but they've yeah. never necessarily been connected for you. Like she does these things and she also has these hardships and she dies early. Um, so it sounds like like there was a time later in your life when you were able to put that all together and say, oh, this is why this led to this, this led to this, the crappy yeah. boyfriends and the drinking and the dying. And those are all, those are related. You knew there was something uncomfortable, but it wasn't necessarily spelled out for you when you were young. Am I getting that right? 
Oh, yeah. And what was interesting as a kid, right, the moments that I was around any type of alcohol would usually be at, you know, and, and all families have these like, we have these family reunions, and I have some family in another city, and um, we would go visit. And those were like the times where she would kind of disappear <laughs> with other adults. And I was like, where are they going? And, you know, there'd be smoke, you know, clouds of smoke and alcohol. And then you're just kind of like something's off there. And one of the things that really helped me to start, I guess, as I'm thinking about now, connect some of the dots was when some of those boyfriends, and there was a particular boyfriend that I'll never forget. um, He always had a brown paper bag with some sort of liquor in it. And they would sit outside in the front of the house and they would, they would drink, you know, and between the family reunion and between like moments with that at the house, the thing I can really, I can almost smell it today was just the smell. Like I was like, something is different, you know? And so then I started obviously connecting those dots later in life, but I couldn't really put a finger on it because, you know, my parents in particular, my dad, you know, they really tried to shield us from all that. You know, they really tried to keep us from it. Well, and it's amazing what a good job they did of that. I mean, that the first story that you first told where your mom waited up all night on the stoop pregnant with you. Yeah. So he, he quit shortly thereafter, right? Because yeah, his drinking was never a part of your life. That's they did an amazing job of shielding you from it, I think. Yeah, he tried, you know, he tried a few times to stop drinking and he had actually had a uh, pretty successful streak. Um, and then what ended up happening is, um, my mom was pregnant and I technically, well, not technically, I have an older brother that passed about an hour after he was about an hour or something like that after he was born. And so my, my, well, it was a blessing and a curse because like, I'm glad I didn't get like, I would have been the third, like not my dad's a junior and I would have been the third and I love my dad and his name's okay, but I'm kind of glad that I didn't become that and if my dad was I don't dislike your name dad uh, but um what ended up happening if you can kind of see this scene so it's their first kid right and you know as a parent myself I know what that moment feels like and so it's the 70s hospitals look a little different so my dad walks into the room and my mom is there and she's got tears rolling down her face and she's like we did it you know like we did it and my dad knew that the baby had passed and my mom had not known yet. And so all of his sobriety kind of came to a screeching halt and that really ramped him back up, you know, and obviously I'm telling the story from what he's told me, you know, I'm sure there's more details, but yeah. So that kind of tipped the scales again and sent him back in a spiral for a hot second. But, but yeah. And I think like, to your point, like it, they did do a great job of it. I think the, the hard part about reflecting on that as an adult now and as a parent now is the fact that, you know, as someone myself that obviously struggled with alcohol, how do you and when do you kind of like tell that story? How do you potentially do you protect them? You know, because in a lot of ways, I think the things that made us resilient as kids, I think later in life made it difficult to end to kind of attack some of these things because in a lot of ways, we didn't have like the tools, you know, I mean, I didn't have the knowledge, you know, that maybe I, I wish I would have, not that it would necessarily change the story. Um, yeah. I can tell you though, that now, like through my, uh, through my discovery and journey, like, you know, the things that my dad has confided and shared with me now, 
they make obviously a lot more sense, but there's so much, there's so much there that, you know, I wonder, you know, what did that help me, you know, 10, 15 years ago? Yeah. And I think there's a generational component to it too. I think, you know, our generation just is more communicative about these things, hopefully, and hopefully that's getting better than our parents and, and our grandparents' generations. I know Sherry and I have definitely prioritized communicating about, about our saga, if you will, uh, with our kids. Um, I guess the jury's still out about whether that's the best route or not, because they're still teenagers, but I feel really good about you know, trying to share with them as much of the detail as possible. Of course, they all have internet connections, so they can listen <laughs> to me this anytime they want. And, what you know it's so funny though something like like i know my dad and other family has asked like how how do you keep your kids from you know reading or listening to this stuff and i'm like they're, yeah their their disinterest is what does it they have <laughs> you know they they would uh they like any kid they love their electronics time and they but uh our story is not something high on their radar that's for sure <laughs> So when, so that's a great history, a great start to the story. When did alcohol enter the picture for you? Yeah, um, I remember it pretty vividly, actually. So I briefly mentioned that I went, I went to, I graduated high school pretty young. So um, I must have like drew in the lines really well or something. I skipped a couple grades in elementary (laughs) school. And um, so if you can imagine, uh, I went out of state for college. And it was really the first time I had been by myself. And I, I realized very quickly, like, and, and my wife will tell you, like, I am a self-professed uh, mama's boy, not, not necessarily good. Well, I had, you know, a few women in our house growing up, but, you know, just adulting was not, I was like, oh, yeah, laundry. I got to really do this now and other types of things. <laughs> so I was kind of behind the eight ball um, in college um, age and just kind of living on your own. And for the first few years in college, and I went to a, a private Christian college, you know, with quote unquote, all the, the good kids, right? And um, we, we would hang out, things like that. And then there was a point in time, and I kind of flirted with this idea, um, probably like my senior year in high school, where, you know, we'd go out to like these, you know, 18 to enter, 21 to drink type, like clubs and things like that and um and as someone that's a extrovert like I loved being around like all those people it was great you know I could get my feel and meet all these people and you know they were all in great moods for the most part but I realized quickly it's because most of them are like half in the bag and, and things like that and um so in college like there was a point probably after I had a really crappy breakup like my sophomore year and then I was just kind of like and this will give you some good context it was my first girlfriend like in living you know it was actually it was actually my first kiss my sophomore year in college and people are like really I'm like no it's true I was a a late bloomer and b like I was young you know and after that breakup like that summer I stayed up at my college for the first time versus going home and uh, started to kind of go out there. And I was making all these friends and the majority of them were in like the bar scene. And, um, but it still hadn't become like an issue. Like I wasn't drinking, like I was just having water or whatever. And then um, 
I'm sure a lot of guys have done this before. Like there was a girl that was like, Oh, you should have a drink. And I was like, Oh, okay. I'll, I'll have a drink. Sure. What's the big deal. And that was, that was the beginning, you know, like uh, going out became um, a blast because I could do a couple things. I could be this extrovert, but then I became like this extrovert on steroids. Mm -hmm. um, and I was also like, you know, foolishly confident and all those types of things. And so that started, that started my trend of what I would label as extreme social drinking. You know, I was never, yeah. you know, I'm not a hothead. I was never, you know, a, a obnoxious that way but I definitely like amped up my my extrovertness I guess we could say and um yeah and so I stayed in that scene it was almost like it, quite honestly it's like I lived a double life in a way because on one hand you know I'm going to this private college you know and then the other hand you know I was out with all these people that definitely didn't go to the private college and you know god bless them you know and a lot of them are really good people um and um i remember even once it kind of came to a head where i was out <laughs> um with some friends and obviously i had a couple college friends that were with me and this this city while it was a large city was still like a small city it felt like and we were standing on a corner and i was all buzzed up and then I used to be an RA in school and college and a couple of the guys that were on my wing that I'm their leader were like, I think that was, I think that was Toby out there on that. That's weird. You know? Um, so yeah. Does he need right? Does he need help? Is he, is I don't know. I, who knows? We swing back and get yeah, him. Yeah, exactly. Come, they probably should have. Those They're, hoodlums have got him captured. Like. Yeah, exactly. What are, what are they doing? And uh, yeah, so that was, that was the introduction. And that definitely set things I was like, oh, there's something to this atmosphere, you know? And I, I didn't really know what or why or what kind of um, trajectory that was gonna have for me. But I definitely knew that at the time, I was like, I thought of it as fun. You know, I was like, oh, this is just fun, you know? So no worries, I'm assuming, just it's fun. And then- yeah, No worries. So you graduate, did, did graduate. you do like I did and just keep it going? You're still looking for the weekends and- and uh and happy hours and stuff like that like is that early career for you yeah it's interesting because early career for me so I kind of like stopped and started um because there was a point after I mentioned like sophomore year in college was interesting and then um started then that trend and staying up in Minneapolis to stand up in that city and um what ended up happening though for me um was not necessarily like happy hours things like that my career didn't start right out of college I actually um right after I got done for a hot second I was in a, a music group um and we we uh were singing and things like that out of these visions of grandeur of being like this rock star and that yeah maybe happened I mean we all probably had our own little visions of what was going to happen and then um and I don't know why so much of my life and, and, you know, thankfully in a positive way, was like me chasing some sort of girl somewhere. Like I started dating this one girl and um, she ended up moving out of state. And so I ended up visiting her on weekends. So I drive to go see her and um, she was, she liked to party. She liked her alcohol uh, for sure. I mean, we, 
we met at a bar. Um, and I think that's really when things kind of paradoxically shifted because it was, it became like the thing we did. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to go hang out and, oh, hey, you want to go to the bar and grab a couple drinks? Sure. No, it became like, all right. I remember moments where I would literally drive down to see her and I'd have my bag in the door and it'd be like, let's go out to some sort of bar and things like that. And so I started to think that it was just normal. I was like, I guess this is just how things go. Um, and then I realized, I was like, well, I can't just be driving down to see a girlfriend like every weekend, I should probably get a serious job, <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, I, I, I had a, I'd had a job uh, a few years ago with that uh, prior to school and some things like that, or in the middle of school. And then I decided to go um, try to figure out what my career was going to be. And um, I got this job as a mortgage banker. And one, it was not a fun job. Um, I actually helped support. I was a, what they would call a CRA loan officer. You ever heard of what those are? No. So CRA, and I don't know if it exists still or not, um, stood for Community Residential Act. Okay. And I basically would help people finance or refinance their houses that were victims of predatory lending. Really a blast, right? Sounds like fun. So you got yeah. screwed and I'm going to help you dig out of it. It's really fun. But I had a, I had a boss that he would take us on like lunches or meetings. He'd give us an address of where we'd meet and we'd think it'd be like some sort of building, like business meeting. It was bars. And he would hold lunch meetings at, at bars. And I was like, okay, this is really weird. Um, this is new and people would drink. And then um, it was the first time that I started going to like, you know, out of state conferences and, and all this other stuff that I'd never done before. And everybody's drinking, you know, you get to your meetings and it was like, everybody wanted to just get to the meeting to go drink somewhere. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess that's kind of the way this works. Um, and that career as a mortgage maker was definitely short lived. And I was pretty much done with that. And um, then I switched gears in my career. And that's when um, even the thought of, I, I had never gone to like a quote unquote happy hour. I didn't frequent those. I didn't really know, like it just wasn't a thing. And I think partly one, like I wasn't hanging out a lot after work with coworkers. And I definitely wasn't like exuding a bunch of extra income to spend at a bar. So um, when that started happening, it kind of brought me back to those times early on when I started drinking, where it was like, it was just fun. Right. You know, you're just for people, you're just blowing off steam. You're talking about work. Everybody can relate because you're all in the same space, you know, and what was like kind of a once a week thing became like pretty much every day after work, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, and then that just continued I mean, that continued for a significant period of time, you know, and what was interesting is that in that process, um, when it really started to take off, I had bounced around from a couple of different companies um, and landed on uh, the company that, that I ended up meeting my wife at, you know, and um, we were all a part of the same social circle and she was she was taken anyway when I, when I knew her the first time and I even vowed I'd never date anybody I worked with anyway. Um, 
and then we ended up all having the same circle of friends and uh that guy became a thing in the past and then next i know fast forward a few years like we're dating but you know the same same group of people and now it's transitioned from happy hours to we'd have happy hours on one night and then somebody in the circle of friends would invite people over a different night and people would drink then and then it turned into everybody would go out and so then it was just part of the routine you know it was it was part of what was expected you know yeah. um and we all we all just jumped in yeah it's always amazing to me for uh, a, a substance alcohol and the the disease of addiction for as insidious as they are how innocently it so often starts i mean it's just a little drinking and then a little more and it's fun and it's friends and everyone's doing it and you know we People spend so much time researching Google searches and reading and listening to podcasts and trying to figure out if they are or are not an alcoholic. And it's, it's such an invisible line that we trip across. And there is definitely a component of there's no going back. There's no going back to being a social drinker at some point. Yeah. But it, it's, it's so often there's no evil intent involved. Um, and your story is just such good evidence of it. And you're, you're, your clear recollection of the steps in the process of, of your drinking um, really paints a really vivid picture about how, again, how innocent this is. And, and it's just fun and friends and experimentation. And then instead of one night, it's two nights and then it's three nights and four nights. And then pretty soon you're in trouble and you don't even know it. Um, well, I was just thinking back about the story of you driving to go out of town to visit this girlfriend and you wouldn't even have your bag in the door and you were headed out to the bar but there's so very little entertainment in a lot of ways if you don't know it for young adults and you know, like, going, going to the bar is the only option the bar, yeah that's oh, where you yeah. meet people that's where you go it's where you hear music you know there's our, our culture is so like you know it's so socialized that that's where you would go to meet people hang out and dance and so, yeah, I couldn't imagine like being 20 something and like, well, what else are we going to do? Right. Well, anything else? <laughs> yeah. It's not like you can, uh, we didn't have apps where you can swipe left or right or whatever right. you do. And yeah. I'd be awful today trying to, trying to date. And, you know, it's interesting you say too about it, it, it was it, one, you're right. There was nothing to do. And two, I think it was the immediacy of like how everybody wanted to feel like you wanted to feel good. And then there was also this, I think everybody, when they're younger, they think this, but me, I had a best friend and I, he was probably my closest drinking buddy where, you know, we did, we cared deeply about each other, but you think maybe one of us would be like, Hey man, like chill out or, or something like that. And um, we had coined this thought between the two of us that like, we were just invincible like nothing was going to get us. We could drink however much we want, do whatever we wanted in that regard. And we were good, you know? And I think that that's also part of the thought process when you're in, when you're that young, like you don't think about lasting effects from alcohol. You don't think about, you know, running your car into something or any of those types of things. You know, you just think that this is fun and I'm going to make it last, you know? I, I had those same thoughts. I think part of the reason for that is in our minds, when we're innocent and we don't know any better, the divide between where we are 
as just a fun loving drinker and an alcoholic, which an alcoholic, that's the guy who sleeps in the gutter and pees on himself. Right. And waits till he can scrape enough up enough money to buy another pint of dark eyes vodka or whatever the <laughs> cheapest vodka is. Um, so it's, it's not possible to go from where we are at that point to, to that point of living in the gutter. Like that's inconceivable. So we don't think we're going to get in trouble because it's just too big a jump. It's too big of a leap for our minds to make. Yep. So that's where the invincibility comes from. I think, cause I had those exact same thoughts. I mean, I was, Nancy Reagan was obnoxious enough with her PSAs <laughs> that I was afraid of, of hard drugs, but I wasn't afraid of alcohol at all. Nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. That's so true. So I definitely share that. Well, no one in your family talked about the dangers of alcohol because they didn't really believe or have any understanding or felt they, if there was any danger of alcohol, like in Toby's house, it was better just to shield the kids. Yeah. Where in my house, we did talk about the dangers of alcohol. I still drank. It didn't stop me, but. <laughs> you know. Tell us, tell us about, so you're drinking and, and the frequencies more often, but yeah. it's still fun. Now you have a, a successful career, something to be really proud of, Toby. Was was the drinking to relieve work stress at this point too, or did that did that come eventually? Yeah, I mean, um, I think in a lot of ways, like I said, you know, getting kind of in the quote unquote world a little younger, um, I feel like in a lot of ways, like the speed of life I was catching up to, if if you will, um, and I think that early well in the middle of my career you know i consider myself pretty pretty blessed pretty lucky like had some pretty unique experiences and you know my my college you know degree has pretty much nothing to do with what i'm doing now you know it has some similarities and components but where i thought i was headed and where i ended up were were two different places and uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just, you know, I think a lot of people, their degrees aren't what they're doing today. Very common. Um, me, me too. And, I know what you mean. Yeah. And so as kind of this more responsibility came, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and these other opportunities came, so did, you know, higher levels of responsibility and stress, you know, and I don't think that growing up, I learned how to manage stress. I knew how to suppress things. I knew mm. how to, to, to dull things down or um, in full transparency, I, I, I figured out how to be like, no, I'm good. You know, I got really good at telling people I was good, right? But underneath it was like this tornado, right? And um, I think as I got more responsibility and ran into, you know, more, more conflict, you know, harder conversations in the workplace, I needed outlets, you know, and um, there weren't a lot, you know, I wasn't, I'm not like a, a, you know, a world athlete, you know, I hate running, like, I run away from things, I don't, like, it's just not my thing, right, um, so a lot of people, you know, they, they'd go to the gym, and I tried that, and I was like, eh, I don't know how I feel about that, um, but I knew, I knew how to be social and I knew that I felt safe there. And then, so what ended up happening was my stress relief became, uh, alcohol in the bar. And, um, as I continued to be more successful, I found myself in more scenarios where alcohol was present. 
I mean, there wasn't a meeting, there wasn't a conversation with the vice president that wasn't in front of alcohol. At least that's what it felt like, right? Um, and so knowing that my outlet became that, um, I gained another really good friend that was another drinking buddy. Like all my friends became drinking buddies. Um, and so when we weren't at work, we'd sit around and drink and it helped me relieve my day. And then kind of like my worlds collided because um, I got married. And um, not too long after I got married, um, the company we worked for had a reorganization. Uh, and they basically told us, so if you can imagine this, we had been married for like two months, say two and a half months. And we were literally having a conversation about how great it was to have a job and, and not have to worry about certain things. And literally like that week, they announced a reorg. And they basically said, hey, um, you got to figure out if you want to stay. And if you do, we can't guarantee you're going to have your job. And if you do keep your job, we're not sure what your job's going to look like. But if you decide you want to leave, you can leave and we'll give you this severance package. But we need to know it was a really short window of time that you needed to communicate to whatever department you're in. And they're like, if you decide to leave, your last um, day will be like the end of January of the following year. And keep in mind, this is like October. You know, so here we are freshly married now faced with a decision of like, okay, what are we going to do? You know, and uh, my wife hadn't lived anywhere else. Um, I was ready to go back to home to the city I grew up in. And so we took the severance package and we left. And I was like, how hard can it be to find a job when we get back? And so I would say we're where all that stress really started to ramp up, this was kind of like the storm clouds beginning to come together because um, we moved home. Well, I moved home. My wife moved with me um, and we were living in this condo. We were renting this condo and trying to find employment. And so now finances are a stressor. Right. Um, and I was like, I don't, I don't know where it's come from. And I, even as like, you know, a, a new husband, my job is to like protect my wife. And here I am trying to figure out how we're going to pay for stuff. And then um, my parents had moved out of state and were moving back to state. And uh, my parents asked me, they said, hey, we're going to find somewhere to live when we get back. Can we live with you guys for for like a month? And again, we had two dogs. It's me and her and a two bedroom 1400 feet square feet condo okay not a lot of room so I'm like yeah okay sure you know you're my parents come on and my younger brother as well <clears throat> so and let me just rewind the tape here this is our first year of marriage first year <laughs> we hadn't even been married a full year yet and uh so literally my little brother is sleeping on my couch my parents are staying in the other bedroom and we're seeing another one. Oh, and by the way, for Mr. Extrovert himself, we lived in this condo that was above, you know, those ones that are like above shops, right? Sure. And of course, one stairwell down and to the right was a bar. There, we, we lived right above a bar practically. And so on our balcony every night, we'd hear people having a good time and whatever, whatever. And then since I'm shy, I, I definitely didn't meet the bar owner and become really good friends with him. And then that was it. Like all my, okay, I can deal with my parents living here. 
I don't have a job, but I'm getting free drinks, you know, whenever I want. Oh, and there was a liquor store at the other end of this place. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it was just, and then there was a fast food restaurant there. So you had the, a pizza place. So you had the trifecta. You could get drink, drunk and have food, you know, all mm-hmm. awful things, awful habits have. And um, so that went on longer than we anticipated. My parents were there longer than they thought. And did that, so, yeah. did that send off any alarm bells for your dad, uh, being that he was in recovery and, and living with his son? What was that like? Uh, yeah, so that's really interesting. That was probably when, um, that was probably the real um, crux in the road where the reality of my morals and what I knew from a kid collided with uh, my new um, passion or whatever you want to call it, or my new, my issue. Right. Um, And what was interesting is I was always internally conflicted, right. Always in the back of my mind somewhere, I knew something wasn't okay, but I was never going to be like, yeah, well, I'm not an alcoholic. So that's not it. Like, I just drink a lot when I need to. And um, not too long um, before, like, my last year in college, um, I had an incident with a buddy where it was, I think, the first time my parents had seen me, like, stay out, where I was, like, out all night. I came home. I was drunk. And my buddy was with me. And we were, like, trying to be quiet in the basement. And I remember my dad calling us upstairs. And this will make sense in a second, but I remember my dad calling us upstairs and I can vividly see this. He had change on a table in our house and he was counting quarters and he pushed them towards us. And it's about six something in the morning. He pushes them over to me. He's like, go get some like coffee or something from like McDonald's and like basically roll out. Like you guys go somewhere else. It's very obvious what you've been doing. And it was almost like he was, my dad has a really good way of expressing disappointment that he's not for as um, outgoing and gregarious that he can be. He doesn't like show that, you know, per se with me. It was almost like he saw the signs, like the warnings, like they're flashing to him, but he wanted me to like, I think in his heart, he was hoping I'd figure it out because of how much they had spent time bringing us up. Right. And he was never one to just be like, I'm going to tell you what to do at that point. I was an adult. And so fast forward to this being in the condo together and me going out to bars. I thought that (laughs) I thought I was doing a good job of like hiding that, you know, I'd be like, Oh, I'm going to go get some pizza or I put something and hide something in the place. But it was pretty obvious that that wasn't the case. And my dad knew, he knew like every night. And then one day um, I got really annoyed that they had, that the length of time that they were there was longer than we thought. And uh, obviously I hadn't lived with my parents for a very long time. And I was trying to kind of, um, you know, figure out my life with my wife, right? And me and my dad got into a huge argument. And to this day, it was probably the, it it was definitely the most electric argument I've ever had with my dad. Um, And 
we like almost went to blows in in my uh, in our condo. Something I never thought would even be something even in the stratosphere of that. But at this point, we're you know I'm a grown man, you know he's my dad, and I'm disagreeing, and I'm like I'm not I'm not gonna put up with it. And I will never forget one of our little dogs like bit his ankle, like not hard, but just kind of nipped at him because our voices had escalated. Sure. You know, and it was kind of a tipping point um, for me where um, not too long after that, not because of the incident, they had found a place and they had moved out and we were still in this condo. And so at that point, like all bets were off, you know, um, I had made a conscious decision that nobody was getting in my way of what I wanted to do, you know, and again, not knowing all the details about my own, my dad's own discovery or, or addiction. Um, he, I mean, basically he was like, all right, you want to find your own way with this? I'm here. You know, I'm here if you want to talk, but you got to kind of find your own way. And, and that was, that's where it really skyrocketed. Yeah. It's so interesting when you talk about finding your own way, but you had, I've never heard it put into words quite like this, but I had the same experience when you talked about there's something gnawing at you. There's something not quite right in the back of your mind, but you can't yeah. figure out what it is. I know I'm not an alcoholic. That's not it. It's something else, but I don't know what it is. And again, I think that goes back to what our vision of what an alcoholic is. For well, sure. we can't be that. So it's got like, so you're searching for this thing that's right in front of your freaking face, but you can't right. see it. Uh, because the thing that you're using to medicate the stress away, it can't be that that's, that's the thing that's helping me. Right. It can't be that that's hurting me. I think that's just fascinating. So let's talk a little bit more about your marriage. So, um, we've mentioned her name a few times, Jane, <laughs> your wife, um, yeah. she recorded intoxicated episode 54 with us, sure. uh, several months ago. Um, I think it's safe to say, I think you both would agree that the relationship has made quite a bit of progress since then yeah. um, and something that you both should be very proud of. Uh, but, but for our listeners who haven't listened to that episode yet, I'd encourage you to go back and just kind of see the change that uh, half a year or so can make in a, in a relationship. Um, so I did want to, we keep mentioning Jane's name. I want to tell people where that's coming from, but sure. so was was the deterioration of the marriage the thing that most clicked for you as far as oh maybe the alcohol is the problem or did, or did you come to that you know realization on your own i mean in my case i was being told the alcohol is the problem and i still i still didn't believe it um what was that like in your life yeah um i think the best way to describe it would be there was a point where i knew there was definitely a problem with being alcohol but I never, like, like I slightly kind of mentioned before, I never fully embraced that. And I'm stubborn as it is. Um, and I like being right, um, probably way too much. Um, and there were so many clear things that were, there is a problem. So really quick, um, or again, a lot of the stuff happened early in our marriage. Um, I had my social drinking buddies again. Um, and at this point in, in our marriage, like I was drinking a lot, I was drinking alone. Um, but again, it just all felt like, oh, it's attached to 
uh, my favorite sports team playing or it was a tough day at work, all those types of things. Um, but then it started to turn into like, she would find, you know, a bottle in the garage and confront me and I'd be like, oh, that's old. You know, I don't know where that came from. Um, and then probably the first real mile marker, significant mile marker was I went out with these buddies one night and um, yeah, I'm definitely not proud of this. You, you, you never say, you know, you see all those, you mentioned Nancy Reagan and I remember like mad, right? Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And it was like, yeah, pff, people are idiots to do that. Like, why would they want to do that? And um, I had met some friends that I hadn't seen in a while and we got, we drank a lot and they're like, all right, see you tomorrow. And this is at a point where uh, my career was really beginning to uh, do well. And um, decided to drive home and I uh, got pulled over. Ooh. And it was like slow motion. Like I knew what was coming, but I didn't, but I did, right? And um, it probably didn't hit me until like I saw my car being towed away where I was like, what is, what is happening? And um, I'll never forget that phone call to Jane. And she was basically like, yeah, you can, you can rot there if you need to. No, and it was funny that even in that, not funny, but in that situation even, um, I think the thing that was scary for me about alcohol in particular and why these warning signs and why it makes sense today and why it took me such a hot second, I think, to really embrace it was I always had these pockets of grace that was extended to me. Hmm. So even that, that, that day in the at the county station or whatever, like the, the cop was like talking to me. He's like, want a sandwich? Like I wasn't in a jail cell or anything weird like that. You know, I got my car the next morning. Um, then it hit me very, in a very real way, like how much it costs to go to court for stuff like that. I'd never been to court, didn't know what to do. But then, you know, I stumbled upon this, this lawyer. And at that point in my life, really the only thing that it cost me was was money, right? I mean, I ended up doing all the things that they told me to do and, and all those types of things. And, you know, the whole thing was expunged. You know, there was, there was nothing, right? On the surface, no one knew anything, right? And I was like, all right, well, dodge that one, you know? And uh, yeah, and that's kind of how I played it to myself for a long time. You know, where I was like, no, there's nothing really going on with me. There's, there's nothing I need to worry about. But I will tell you that Jane, she would tell me all the time. She's like, I think you have like an issue, a problem. And then I think where it came full circle was obviously there became a tipping point in our marriage where it was going to be like me and alcohol or me and them. And obviously that's one obviously huge wake up call at that point we had you know, two kids that I adored, you know, and it became this like back and forth of, you know, when I was, if I had a tough day or something like that, and I was drinking, like, it was like, I'd be by myself, like, they would figure out something to go do. Um, and so that part of my life was passing me by. And then it also started extending into my family, where holidays, you know, I was sneaking things to drink in holidays and things like that. So everybody in my family knew I was drinking and really what became kind of the collision course was there was a point where Jane was like, 
yeah, you go figure it out. Like you can do whatever you want. You just can't do it here. Like I'm going to protect their kids. And then I remember sitting by myself thinking about what was going on with me. And I had become this person that was like, no, everything's great all the time. Yeah. But I had nobody to call. And I think that was the point. Cause even when I reached out to like my parents or my sisters or my brother, because I had abused that over the years, um, they were kind of giving me the tough love component too. And I was by myself. And I think that was like the first real time where I was like, I'm going to lose everything I have. And it's all my fault. Like, you know, where I'm like, I'm the only one here. And I record, I recorded, I, I tried to call my parents and I recorded this video with me sitting in the front seat of my car when I was just sobbing. Right. And um, to this day, I haven't had the heart to delete that video from my phone because I'm just like, man, that was, that was that, that was, that was my life, you know? And so, yeah, that was, that was, that was really, that was the moment I think in my life where I was like, I, I've got to do something to save anything that I've got. Um, and then eventually, and I don't know if anybody else goes through this, like you always think of this, like getting sober to save like your life and your family and, and things like that. I still hadn't made the transition that I needed to do it for me. Yeah. Um, because I was still kind of stubborn. I was like, okay, I can totally be a social drinker. And I even tried it for a hot second, you know, after, you know, around that time where I was like, oh, I, see, I totally had one drink today and I'm good, you know? Um, but, but yeah, there came a point where I was like, no, I just can't, I can't do this. And in my heart of hearts, I knew like, I don't know, I knew the potential of, of what my life could look like. And what it had looked like. And, and then I took an honest look at what I really had in front of me. You know, I wasn't to your point, I wasn't in a gutter. I wasn't the person that, um, you know, I definitely spent a lot enough money on alcohol, but I wasn't out of money, you know, and things like that. Um, and so it was like, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's interesting that you said, you know, I don't know if if other people experience this, you, you made that reference a minute ago. Um, I think almost everybody experiences almost everything that you're explaining. You're doing a really, you're painting a really vivid picture of what it's like at that point. Uh, the video, the sobbing video, man, I hope you never erase that. That is important for you to have to go back to, you know, as a reminder, no matter how, how far free of this thing we get, those reminders are valuable. I wish I had a video like that. I certainly sobbed enough times. Um, I think it, the other thing you mentioned that really hit home for me is when you talk about, you know, when you just tell everybody, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. Even when you're dying inside. I mean, I remember when my mom called me out on that. She said, Matt, every time I ask you how you are, you say, I'm great, I'm great. She said, you can't always be great. I don't understand. And uh, I wish that had been a more impactful, you know, um, relationship tightening moment. It wasn't, I just blew her off, you know, even harder and told her, well, you don't know what you're talking about or whatever. I don't remember exactly what I said, but I, I did, she cracked the door open and I didn't, I didn't come in. Yeah. I slammed it shut. I wish I had, uh, but, but man, can I relate to that? Just everyone in every context asks you how you are. I'm good. I'm good. Um, and just, refusing to look at it myself let alone talk to somebody else about it 
Yeah. And that, that is, and, and the alcohol is always there for us to, to help us push it down. You know, we're trying to push, push our stress and our worries and our problems and the, the destruction that we're creating down. Boy, if I just have a couple of drinks, it'll help me do that. So I think the the picture you paint is really, really, it's going to resonate with a lot of people. And I think for the loved ones, I mean, this podcast, as you know, a, a lot of our listenership, which I don't think is a word, is it? <laughs> it is today. I'm making up words. No preparation. <laughs> winging it. Winging it all day. <laughs> but the people who listen are largely the loved ones. And you know, that's a pretty precarious position to be in, a pretty angry position to be in, a frustrated position. And I think it's great to hear you so vividly explain, you know, we're, we're not here to, to cut you any slack or to say, you know, don't worry about it. Oh, don't worry about it, Toby. Nothing you did was wrong. That's not what this is about. This is about explaining how you get into this hole and how every step of climbing into that hole is just as innocent as the one before it. And you just don't even know where you're going until you're there. Well, and I think also like the alcohol is doing something so different from you than it is for yeah. us onlookers that we see it and we see what's going on and we see the transition and it is slow and gradual, but it's so most so slow and gradual and you're intoxicated. So you don't know what's happening and we're sober and we're looking or watching and it is, it's frustrating to be on that side of it yeah. and to watch somebody you love not even realize this is happening because you, you can't possibly know this is happening. Yeah. No, it's interesting you should say that because like Jane and I, in hindsight, we talk a lot and it would almost be like, she would tell me things and I would, you know, deny it all in the moment. And then I'd have, I don't think it was truly an epiphany, but like a few days later, I'd be like, yeah, you know, when you said this or that, and she was like, you were actually paying attention. And I was like, yeah, but there was no way I was going to tell you you were right. There was no way I was going to say, yeah, that makes total sense. And, and you're right. Like it's, it's not done out of, you know, if you'd asked me a gazillion years ago, they're like, well, you know, would you, would you ever lie to your wife? I'd be like, of course not. It's my wife. Like I was like the epitome of a hopeless romantic growing up, yeah. you know? And, um, and here I am now, like just spewing them. Like, you know, I, I, I was somebody else, you know, like, oh, no, I didn't drink tonight. Oh, you know, I think there was a point where um, we had gotten to the whole thing where my wife's like, yeah, you know, just if you're going to drink, just don't come home, you know, drinking or don't bring any of it home. And that transition is just trying to figure out as our marriage was definitely down a downward spiral um, where, you know, she'd be like, well, you're going to blow into a breathalyzer when you get home you know, and so I was like, fine, whatever, you know, we, there were all sorts of stuff where I walked out of a therapist's office, all these other things, and um, of course, like, crazy invincible me, you know, I had started figuring out a ways to circumvent the breathalyzer, you know, I'd come home, take the breathalyzer, if it was a tough day at work, and I wanted something to drink, I'd have, like, something waiting outside the garage, and I'd have to take out the garbage, right, and so, she thought I'm home sober and obviously, you know, what became a, another important, I, I think, milestone or thing to figure out for me was, and she told me this after the fact, like a, a long time later, um, she never knew what the, she would wait like a half hour or 45 minutes or so after I got home to kind of see where my demeanor would go. Um, and some days I hadn't drank and it was fine. 
most days she'd be like, yep, here it comes, you know? And, and again, I wasn't like a jerk or anything like that. I was really just sleepy and incoherent and didn't really participate, you know, which is one of the things I think that hurt her the most was I wasn't present, you know? And I think fast forward to today, you know, obviously that looks very different today. And even we were talking the other day, like I'll never take for granted uh, sobriety and the importance of my sobriety. And I will never get overconfident because anything can happen to anybody. Like, I think there was a time I thought I would never, none of this would ever happen to me. And in a lot of ways, some people that know me are like, wow, I can't believe that happened. Because to your point, Matt, they, I was always good, right? And then you take the last few years of just the state of the world, right? I think a lot of people, if they looked at themselves in the mirror, whatever their, you know, choice of dealing with things are, we probably all have some things to take a look at. Um, but, you know, understanding I would never get overconfident, things like that. There's also this other thing now, and I don't know, Matt, as the drinker, if you ever experienced this, but my dad did. And we actually had this conversation a couple weeks ago because, I mean, I can't remember the last time I thought about uh, alcohol in any regard for any type of solution or even like, quote unquote, tempted to drink. Um, but there was just this moment where I was like, yeah, I just don't do that. You know, and it's not even coming from an arrogant place. It's just like, that's just, that's not the answer. And I know what the answer looked like when I thought it was, you know, and, um, and so, yeah, even coming out of, um, even coming into sobriety for me. And again, I talked about like grace being extended. Like I never had any type of crazy, I was never physically addicted to alcohol. You know, I never had any, you know, crazy withdrawal symptoms or anything like that. You know, for me, it was truly like the outlet, right? It was like, okay, I'm stressed. This is my go-to um and then through all the work and that's a lot of work to kind of face yourself full center because you also realize that outside of the alcohol there's a whole lot else going on with you um that you have to work through and work with but yeah I don't know it's just like every day now it's just not it's just not in my picture and I just know it won't be um and obviously I'll continue to do the work to make sure that that's the case but yeah it's so far removed from how I approach my day because my life is just so much better. Like it's so distinctly different. I think, I think that the upbringing that you described is a real asset to you in this, you know, this, what we're talking about here, this part of your sobriety, because you've got a whole big chunk of your life where alcohol didn't exist, not only for you, but for other than the one aunt that was, um, you know, drinking and having crappy boyfriends, uh, for the real role models in your life, your parents, uh, and the grandmother who kind of ruled the roost, as you said, um, alcohol wasn't a part of it. So I think that's a real asset for you because you can have this kind of reset and say, I'm not thinking about it because it's just not part of it anymore. And you've, you've got that childhood to kind of go back to where it wasn't a part of it. So I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but I think that's a, that, that's cool. Cause for me, it was definitely more gradual. It took a long time before 
even a long time in sobriety before alcohol wasn't even a part of the answer or even a something that I would in the back of my mind think, oh, you know, it'd be great to have a drink in this situation. Um, that was that was a long hard earned for me for sure. It took a long time. Yeah. But I'm I'm glad to hear that that's a place that you are. You know, one of the things we talk a lot about, Toby, is that sobriety doesn't actually fix anything. And you started to kind of allude to that. You know, once you get alcohol out of the way, you still got your own stuff that you got to look at and face and and learn to get through. On the relationship side, sobriety is not a solution there either. It's just it's a prerequisite, but it's not the answer. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like work and, and you know, you've got some serious time under your belt, but it's still relatively early on. You're still in the midst of this, I think. Yeah. working to get the trust back and, yeah. and to, to get back to where you want to be in your marriage. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, in a word, like that, I feel, I feel like getting sober, so to speak, while that took work, I, I, that feels easy. I think compared mm -hmm. to some of this other stuff now, because you're like, oh my God, what did we do? Um, you know, especially it, and I think it's, you know, slightly similar to you and Sherry's story in the sense that like, you know, we drank together, you know, mm -hmm. it's kind of like, you know, it was a happy time then too, but like working through that now, um, and it was just a few days ago that me and my wife were actually talking about, you know, we've got friends that are not in a similar place with one side or the other in their relationship where the partner needs to become sober. Um, and I think you don't take for granted how, how lucky we are to be in that small percentile of people, right? That kind of come through it. But yeah, even though you're coming through it and you're on the page, on the surface, you're quote unquote, like married. I think that you have to, um, I, as I mentioned, like I am, I like being right and I'm very impatient. And I've realized later in my life, as much as I didn't realize it, I, I'm more of a control freak than I'd like to admit. Um, and I think because of that, um, I really did believe it. And it's been said a thousand times. I really did believe it'd be like instant that our marriage was going to be fine. Because mm -hmm. even thinking about some of the days, and I didn't understand like half of these terms, like I didn't understand love bombing and all these other things that I know about now as I've gone through, you know, my own journey with this stuff. I was like, love bombing, what's that? And then I realized like when I was drinking, I was like, oh, I'd be awful the night before. And then the next morning be like, would you like some coffee, honey? Like, it's great to see you. And I was like, oh, that's a thing. Like, I didn't really understand that. And I think when you start trying to put the pieces back together in your relationship, um, being you're two very different people that went before you um, before this kind of divide took place. You're just not the same. You know, I, I'm not the same person. Um, mm -hmm. I would like to say in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm arguably probably the best version of myself in recent memory that I can remember. Right. And I would also say the same thing for my wife, you know, she's developed characteristics or they probably already always have been there. But I think some of those in the midst of, you know, crisis, those characteristics kind of bubble up, you know, and what ended up happening was she had developed almost like this 
this muscle that she's learned how to flex that was like, yeah, I'm not going to deal with any, any of this stuff. And we got to deal with everything else head on. And um, I think that allowed me to really take a step back and realize that in order for all this to work, one, it's going to take a ton of time Two, I have re I have learned what it means to, in her words, like sitting it with her. Like I, I didn't get that either. So I'm like, yeah, I understand. Like I, I, it wasn't good. I get it. Yeah. Let's move on. And instead of that, I think part of what begins the healing process in your relationship is there is no like, okay, forget about it. Let's move on. That's, it's more like, all right, let's pause and let's sit in it. And I might not understand it completely. I never will understand it all completely. Um, but I know my role. And now I know also though, that um, who I am continuing to strive to be. And so how do you begin to kind of piece those things together? And it's almost like, um, in some ways, it's, it's almost like courting your, courting your spouse you know, again, to be like, in one quick example would just be, I mean, it's stupid. Like me and me and Jane used to fight over anything we had to do together that involved putting something together. It was never good. Like you wouldn't have given us Ikea furniture early in our marriage. Cause it turned into, <laughs> cause it would just be, it's way competitive. I know how to do it. She knows how to do it. And that's just the end of it. But it was also something that made us made it fun. Right. Cause tit for tat, we would, you know, and, and what's funny too, is even through alcohol and all that stuff, one of the things that made us strong was we were always really good at communicating with each other. And that became like a, a divide, right? Um, and as things started to get better, one way I knew things started to get better and it's really small and really weird. She found this obnoxious game called Bananagrams that I don't know if you've played it it's like yeah it's like the worst like I I'm not a Scrabble player and I'm like really bananagrams spelling stuff okay whatever and I gave it a shot and started playing it with her and it kind of became like our thing and it was weird like but we were playing this game and laughing and joking around about like oh you know you suck like I beat you and when you win, like, I don't know, I don't think you're like the top banana. I forgot what it was, but like, if you lose, you are a bad banana. So I won like the first run of the games and I love telling my wife she was the bad banana. And I think <laughs> underneath all of it though, what it did, it kind of lightened up like um, just moments. Like we didn't have a lot of light moments. And so what it allowed us to do is start to balance then when we went to other places that were uncovering some of the dark spots, you know, um, mm. that, that really allowed us in our relationship, that podcast, when she did the podcast with you all, like that was, that was slightly a watershed moment for us too, because it was just one of those things where I got comfortable with letting her story be loud enough that I wasn't trying to mute it by saying, mm. oh, it's not as bad. And so when I realized it was as bad and she realized I wasn't so bad. And I was this whole thing with like, cause kind of like you, like it wasn't even about just getting sober. It was, it was more about keeping my word. And I think that's the piece that over time 
has continued to kind of balance out our relationship where I am dependable, you know, I am doing what I say I'm going to do. And as those deposits continue to come back, you know, I think that that, that has changed kind of, that's changed our trajectory for sure. I love the bananagrams part though, because finding <laughs> an outlet for laughter in the relationship in early sobriety is really, really hard, especially since as the drinker, my main source of laughter had for years been drinking and, and right. Gary and drinking with you early on when not early on, but for the, the period when you would drink with me, which was not the case at the end, but for most, most of it. Yeah. And, and as silly as that sounds, a man, I don't, I've never played bananagrams, but that story so resonates with me because finding a way to mm -hmm. laugh together is really hard. And I love how you described it as a counterbalance for the hard stuff, because you got to go through the hard stuff too. Man, I think, I think having you on, I think your willingness to be open and honest and vulnerable and just explain the emotions in the different stages, I hope is going to be a huge asset to our listeners because I think what you and I represent are, are people who often struggle to express this level of emotion and vulnerability. And, you know, I'm glad you're an extrovert. I, I'm glad you're a people person because I think uh, there's a lot of people that have gone through everything that you talk about. I'm certainly one of them and finding someone who's willing, not just willing to talk about it, but, but comfortable talking about it. It's huge. And so I just can't thank you enough, Toby, for, for spending this hour plus on the intoxicated podcast with us. Absolutely. And I, I hope that, you know, there's, I'm sure there's more stories out there that need to be told. So um, and we're going to have you tell all of them. We're just going to have right. you be the storyteller. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks for letting me be a part. And I, I just appreciate both of you so much. So, and I know Jane does too. Oh, right back at you. You're, you're one of our favorite couples. Um, and we just hope to keep getting to know you better. Absolutely. Thanks brother. All right. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.